It says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. End of reading. When I, was, uh, when I was about to graduate high school, I received a very special gift from my grandparents. I'll never forget the moment. It's just indelibly marked on my brain. As we gathered in my, my parents' living room, the air got real still, and my grandmother got very quiet and pulled out a little wrapped box. She had tears in her eyes, which was not normal for my grandmother. She tended to not display much emotion. And, and she said something to the effect of, Eric, to, to celebrate your, your entrance into adulthood, your grandpa and I want to give you something very special to us. It is something that we deeply treasure and that we've been holding on to all these years to give to you today. And immediately I was, of course, struck by the, the gravitas of the moment as she handed the box over to me and I opened it up and inside was a beautiful Omega wristwatch. I mean, it looked a bit worn, but it was still working. It was ticking when I opened it up. And my grandma then explains that the watch had been her father's, my great-grandfather's, and that it was one of the few things of his that she still had left. And then she urged me very seriously, as I looked at the watch, to take good care of it and to treasure it the rest of my days until perhaps one day I could hand it down to my own grandchildren. And I have treasured it ever since. Because after all, we treasure, uh, we preserve that which we love. In our text this evening, Je Jesus says to his disciples, on the last night of his, of his ministry here on earth, before he's going to be arrested and then tried and crucified, he says these words, If you love me, 
then you will keep my words. Now, now what comes to your mind when you hear the word keep in this context? My guess is, is that most of us, when we hear the word keep here, tend to think of it as uh, it meaning if we love Jesus, then we will obey his words. But actually, interestingly enough, the word keep in Greek um, is, doesn't actually translate to obey. Uh, instead, the word in Greek uh, is tereo. It's often translated in the New Testament with three sort of synonymous words. Sometimes it's translated with the word guard. As in Acts chapter 16, verse 23, when a jailer is told to, quote, tereo, guard a group of prisoners. Or sometimes it's translated watch over, as in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, verse 36, when the people are said to be, quote, tereoing Jesus as he hangs on the cross. They are watching over him. And in Ephesians 4.31, you have it translated as preserve, as Paul commands the church there to, quote, tereo, the unity of the peace they have in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, in John's gospel, you have it translated many times, in especially this last section here, uh, with the word keep. But it is not translated obey. With that as background, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that if they love him, they'll do everything they can to uphold, to guard, to preserve his word. To help understand, picture again a parent that has to go somewhere far away, giving their child an heirloom of some sort and saying, now you hold on to this for safekeeping, don't let anything happen to it. That's what Jesus means when it comes to his word. And, and why is it so important that these disciples then, these apostles then, held on to his word and preserved his word? Well, simply put, the same reason that it's so important for us today. His word has the means by which faith comes so that human beings can be saved. It's that simple. Apart from the word, nothing can happen. So, problem for me, and in fact, for the first disciples that he's speaking to this night, and for you, is that far too often I value and keep the words of others over and above the word of Jesus, if I'm honest. I find myself guarding and preserving the words that advertisers tell me. I value and keep the word the world around me says I should and thus give in to their ideas of life and what it's all about. If I'm honest, I find myself preserving words that fill me with doubts and insecurities about myself that have nothing to do with what Jesus says about me. In truth, like the early disciples, I'm not very good at keeping his word. And thus my love is not as it should be. So then, is there any help? Well, that's what tonight's message is about. Jesus does not leave his disciples. He doesn't leave you and I to our own devices, but instead leaves us with some promises that will help us keep his word. First of all, he points to his presence. 
Quote, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it's interesting, as you read the context of this discourse between Jesus and his disciples, you see a strong repetition taking place. Throughout Jesus, uh, throughout Jesus says these words, if you love me, you'll keep my words. He says in the same breath, but I'll be with you and I'll send you my help. Why does he do that? Well, simply put, apart from his presence in your life, you can't do anything. John 15, right after this, right before this. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do no things. Look it up in Greek, it turns out the word no thing means no things. <laughs> can't do any of the things. What will the Spirit do in our passage today, especially for the first apostles? He will, quote, teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Now, important here. Scholars will say that these words really do have a narrow application to the specific disciples he's speaking to, and then a broader application to all disciples together. Uh, with the first group, the, the very narrow group of disciples, this is a foreshadowing, frankly, of how the New Testament will come to be, how it will come to be written. How did the disciples possibly remember all of Jesus and what he said? How do we know that the Gospels are an actual reportage of what Jesus did? How do we know they just weren't making things up? How do we know that it's accurate? This is how we know. Jesus says they are supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit's presence to remember, to recall everything that he did that he wants us to know about. The helper brought it to their mind and they wrote it down. But in the, in the broader application still today through that word, the Holy Spirit does bring to mind all that Jesus says too. To us, so when we are walking in sin without repentance, the, the Spirit is faithful to remind us of God's words that we ought not be walking that way. And on the other hand, He's faithful to remind us of our standing in Christ when we come in repentance to Him. The Spirit is always working, He's always doing this, bringing to us, bringing to our remembrance God's Word. He's faithful like that. I'll give an example of my own life when I was younger. Um, some years ago, after I had become a believer, I had, I had fallen into some sin, and, and I was feeling very guilty about it. I was feeling just, just very ashamed. And I, and I kept on thinking about what would happen if Jesus came back right then. Would I be forgiven? Would I still be saved? Would I still be a Christian? And I started thinking about the passages that talk about what will happen when Jesus comes back. And I was starting to get a little frightened. What will happen when, when Jesus comes back? Well, well, one of the things that we're told happens all the time in these different passages about his coming is that there will be this loud trumpet blast. And that everyone will hear it. And that will be the end. And I'm not kidding. As I'm thinking about this, somewhere outside... Some kid practicing trumpet for some reason blows the trumpet as loud as he can. 
And I, I'm telling you, I jumped up from the couch and I immediately ran down the hall to go check and see if my parents were still there just to make sure because I knew they were more righteous than I. And they were, thankfully. And it turns out the second coming hadn't happened and I wasn't left behind. But the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit works in ways to remind us of the fact that when we fall that God is faithful to bring us back. The Spirit uses all sorts of means to do this in our life. And He's there to remind us that there's there, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus when we feel overwhelmed and condemned by our sins. The old is gone, the new has come. So that leads to the second gift that Jesus gives us for keeping His Word. And that is His peace. He says, quote, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. I think naturally when we read the word peace, we tend to think of it like an inner tranquility, like Jesus is promising that we're always going to be kind of walking on clouds or something and that we can walk on clouds at all times. That's not really what he means here. What he means by this piece is something far greater that may eventually lead, it does eventually lead to inner peace, and that is peace between God and mankind. This is a declaration by Jesus that because of his work for us, we have peace with God. And it's not like the peace that we have with other people on earth. What does he mean by that? He says, I, I don't give to you as the world gives. Well, here's the way the world gives peace. You go to war, you sign a peace treaty, and then a decade or two later, you go to war with the same country again. Oops, peace treaty broken. Our promises are not always very solid and very reliable. But Jesus says, my peace isn't like that. The peace I've won for you is once for all time. I'm going to end this battle right now. Tonight, when I'm arrested, you won't understand it, disciples. When I'm tried, you won't understand it, disciples. When I'm whipped, you won't understand it. When I'm crucified, you won't understand it. But I'm telling you, that is the means by which I can declare to you, peace. War's over. God's not mad at you anymore. When he looks at you, he's going to see me, and he's going to be happy. Peace. It's never changing. So we read in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on a little later in the chapter to tell us where this peace comes from. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, our relationship to God, ultimately is not first and foremost based on how well we keep and preserve his word, but based on Jesus' ability to keep and preserve God's word. It is not first and foremost based on our dying to self, but on his dying for us. It is not based on our rising up to defeat our sin, but on his rising up to defeat our sin. In him we are declared to be at peace with God, and this peace is not temporal. It is eternal. And the more you own this, something amazing and beautiful can happen in your life. Well, you actually want, want you actually treasure his words more. 
actually want to know what he has to tell you. You actually want to know what he has for you because his word becomes a source of life for you. A friend of mine, Paul Zoll, states it like this in one of his books. My doing of the good deeds Jesus taught actually hinges on him saving me. I, who had found myself paralyzed and blocked from doing those good deeds, when I felt myself loved in my chains, in my paralysis, that feeling of being loved seemed to trigger the very motivation and strength that had failed me before. Being treated forgivingly in my faults and fears freed me up. The faults themselves lost some of their binding strength. The confining fears ceased to restrict so tightly. There was an empowering connection between Jesus saving me, who he was for me, and the fuel to do what he said I should do. There's an illustration, I don't know if you've ever seen Les Rob, whether it's the the musical or one of the movie versions, but think of the chief character, Jean Valjean. The punishment for his crimes doesn't change the man, it only hardens the man. The law only hardens him and makes him try to figure out more devious ways to get away with crime so that he can live another day. But it is when he is given unadulterated grace by a priest who he had stolen from. And the priest does not hold it against him, but instead allows him to get away with it. That Valjean is changed and becomes the hero of the story. Jesus says, I give you peace because that peace will produce a desire, a love for me and for my word. So he gives us his presence by his spirit. He gives us his peace. And thirdly, for us to keep his word, he gives us his power. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to, you, say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now what on earth does that mean? It's a very strange sentence. I think... What Jesus is pointing out to us here is his victory over the devil and the devil's world. If I can paraphrase, he is saying, hearing of me going back to the Father, ascending back up to the Father, is hearing about me ascending as victor to the right hand of God as the reigning king of all things. And this should fill you with hope to know that one day you will join me there. This will empower you to live out the rest of your life here, knowing that in me, you too have the victory. In fact, because he has the victory, his word will be kept in our midst. His church cannot be defeated. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his kingdom. In other words, you know, when you're on the team of a great player, when you're on the team of a winner, a real, a real great player inspires the other players around them to do better too. 
You know, we're watching the NBA Finals right now, or at least I, I have been. It's been a pure delight to see the Warriors get handled. Just a pure delight. Kawhi is the best player in basketball right now, without a doubt. I, I have a bully pulpit. I can say this. I can say this. I can get away with it. Uh, but in all seriousness, great players. You see it happening right now. Personally, Kawhi. He elevates his whole team. You see it in football. You see it in everywhere else. When you know that you're with somebody that's winning, then it inspires you. Jesus is saying, remember, I've won. I've won the victory. And this power then frees us to radically go out and serve our neighbor. By the power of his word. Gerhard Faraday describes what this new power gives us the ability to do. I'll wrap up here with just a brief quote from him. He says, if you can see it, if you can see that it really is all of what Jesus does for you that's enough, then you can, you can see, or at least perhaps begin to see, what is the power of God's grace and rejoice. For that is the other side of the coin. Once you have gotten out of yourself and closed system, then perhaps you can turn away from yourself. Maybe really for the first time and look upon your neighbors. Maybe for the first time you can begin to receive creation as a gift. A sheer gift from God's hands. And who knows what might happen in the power of this grace. All possibilities are open. You might sell your car or even give it away for someone else. You might find even that you could swallow your pride and stage a protest march for your neighbor or begin to seek to influence the power structures. For in the power of his cross, the way is open. The way is open to begin, at least perhaps in faltering ways, in countless little ways, to realize what it means to die to self. For that and the final analysis is his gift to you. The free gift of the new man, the new woman, the one who can live in faith and hope for whom all possibilities are open, including the power to keep his word out of love for him because he has first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause us to love it and to love you. Because of all you've done for us, we pray that you would inspire us, Father. Because we don't, because the victory is ours in Christ, we're free. Help us live in that freedom. As we pray the prayer our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.